Welcome to Sense and Sensibility, the Inflation Guy podcast. I am Michael Ashton. I am the Inflation Guy, and I am your host. And today on the podcast, the title of the podcast is Five Simple Ways an Endowment Can Improve Its Inflation Protection Allocation. I'm going to be doing something a little more targeted towards a narrow audience. I'm specifically going to talk to endowments and OCIOs who help endowments, I think other people who care about inflation will still get something out of this podcast, but I'm really aiming it towards that group in the same way that I've aimed other podcasts towards individuals and uh, and, and so on. Uh, but before I get into it, uh, a word from our sponsor. This episode of Sense and Sensibility, like so many of them, is sponsored by Simplify ETFs. Simplify is a new ETF provider offering alternative investment strategies with full transparency, daily liquidity, and low costs. Some of their hedge fund style strategies include managed futures, commodity trend following, steepener trades, and more. If you're an individual investor or an RIA, you will likely find a compelling alternative investment from Simplify, some, from Simplify that can help improve your portfolio. Check out their website, simplify.us, and you can find their entire lineup of ETFs at simplify.us slash ETFs. So... You can probably tell that I have a bit of a cold, and, uh, and so today's podcast might be a little bit shorter than the normal one, um, but uh, and, and there may be a little breaks in here where there, where there it sounds like there's a discontinuity when I have to stop to like cough and hack. But uh, by uh, my apologies for that. But I wanted to to uh, not go a week without this, um, especially since next week is the Fourth of July, Independence Day in the United States, and so the There'll be people kind of in and out for much of next week, and I thought important to get this podcast out there. Um, one more preliminary before we get into the meat of the broadcast, and that is the trivia question. So even if you are, in, are not interested in five simple ways an endowment can improve its inflation protection allocation, you probably stayed at least this long because you wanted to hear the trivia question, and I'll give you the answer at the end. The trivia question is this, in, and I love this question. In 1904, the Olympic marathon distance was 24.8 miles. What caused it to be lengthened in 1908 to the current standard distance, which is 26 miles and 385 yards? When I was running my first marathon, you know, uh, the, I, the, the, I thought that that was the distance between you know, the plains of Marathon and, and Athens or whatever it was. And, um, and that's not true. So um, it was 24.8 miles was the, was the Olympic distance. And it changed in 1908. Tell me why that is. Okay. <clears throat> anyway, uh, like I said, I've got a bit of a cold. Uh, this it would be smart for me to have a shorter podcast, but I do, do tend to get wound up. So uh, we'll see what happens here. I've been talking to outsourced CIO companies, aka OCIOs, uh, recently, and I and and in the past I've I've spoken with and to a number of endowments. Uh, so this this is this topic is top of mind to me, but it's something I've dealt with for a long time. I'm not sure that a podcast is necessarily a really great place to to deal with some of these complex subjects, but I thought if I make them this sort of the simple simple ways that endowment, an endowment 
you know, simple steps an endowment can take, then maybe we can at least sort of scratch the surface. Anyway, you be the judge. Um, I wanted to highlight a few relatively simple ways that the endowment can improve the uh, in inflation allocation. Most endowments, if you're familiar with the model, have a portion of their portfolio allocated to inflation protection or inflation-sensitive assets or something like that because uh, an, an endowment's raison debt reason for being is to support a school, a hospital, a ministry, or some other purpose in perpetuity. So if the endowment is not going to gradually provide less support for its mission over time, then it needs to be able to keep up with the price level, with inflation. And, and ideally, inflation in its targeted purpose. So an, an educational endowment should want to keep up with education inflation because that's the units in which it is, its liability is, is really priced. You know, a uh, hospital endowment should want to keep up with hospital costs and so on. Uh, but that's sort of different from a, you know, a pension fund, which in the, in the United States, most pension obligations are in nominal terms, uh, a fixed nominal amount and not inflation adjusted. But even if they're inflation adjusted, that inflation is wage inflation. And so it, it tends to be, um, or, or the inflation accruals are wage inflation, and then the payouts are generally consumer inflation. And so that it's sort of a, a real, it's a different problem there. Uh, and in fact, Waring, Waring and Siegel, M. Barton Waring and Lawrence Siegel, a couple of decades ago wrote about how pension plans need to think about their fixed income allocations in additional dimensions, not just the nominal duration, uh, the nominal risk of their, of their bond portfolios, but real duration how the value of that portfolio changes with changes in real rates and inflation expectations duration. Because if we add real rates and inflation expectations together, we get nominal rates. But Waring and Siegel had the point that you could separate these and you don't have to manage them as one. They don't have to be the same as they are with a nominal bond. And in fact, at the time that this that, that article came out, and I've got a link in the notes to it, it's a it's a... It's a fantastic article, watershed article. You, if you've not read it before, you should read it if you're in the pension fund or endowment world. Um, but at the time it came out, I was actually at Barclays, and we were already sort of managing our inflation derivatives book in exactly that way. And, and sort of rather than looking at the nominal duration of the portfolio, look at the real duration, look at the inflation expectations duration. Um, anyway, um, and I actually later wrote a paper that sort of extended this to a third dimension for post-employment medical plans, and I've got that link in the note in the notes also. Um, but anyway, the, the lesson is good. You know, that was for for pension uh, pension plans. It's called tips the dual duration in the pension plan, and so they were specifically talking about pension plans. But the lesson is still good for endowments. Um, except that endowments don't really necessarily think in terms of a fixed income allocation and equity allocation in quite the same way. They tend to have inflation protection allocation and then, you know, return seeking um, sort of assets. And, and so it's, it's not quite the same way as looking at just a bond portfolio. Keeping up with the mission, which is what an endowment wants to do, means that in the wearing Siegel framework, the real duration needs to be much longer than the inflation expectations duration. So in fact, for an endowment, nominal sovereign bonds, regular treasuries, aren't a good fit uh, unless 
they happen to be really cheap and then they can be, you know, return seeking. But most endowments actually should not have very many nominal bonds. There's just not a whole lot of reason for them to do so. But anyway, I'm not, I don't want to get off on the, the whole endowment mission um, too much. My point is that endowments are different. And here are five simple ways an endowment can improve on that, at, that inflation allocation. Step one, increase the size of the allocation. Um, the size of the inflation protection allocation was, for most endowments was likely established a long time ago in a, an era of relatively stable inflation. But the size of the allocation should be related to the chance that inflation is going to get high enough to impair the real returns of the other parts of the portfolio and to the chance that inflation is going to be high enough to change the risk parts of the portfolio. That is, you know, higher correlation for, for traditional assets. You know, when inflation is above 2.5% for about three years, then the correlation between stocks and bonds flips positive historically, which is where we are now. And that's why stocks and bonds are positively correlated right now and have been for the last year or so. So, um, uh, so when those things change, that allocation should change with it. And I'll talk actually later in, in something other than simple. Uh, I'll mention that again. But anyway, increasing the size of the allocation doesn't mean that an endowment needs to hold less in terms of return-seeking investments. Um, it just means that, that those return-seeking investments become at least partly done as overlays or the inflation protection can be levered slightly, which is the same thing. But the point is that now that we are in an environment of higher, probably higher, but at the very least more unstable inflation, uh, the size of the inflation protection allocation almost certainly needs to be increased for most endowments. Okay, so that was number one, and you're not, you shouldn't be too surprised that I was going to talk about it being bigger. But two, make the allocations in the, 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 the sub-allocations, I guess, in the inflation allocation, tactical and have a framework for those allocation adjustments. And here's what I mean. We all know that you'll have inflation bonds. We all know that you'll have commodities. You'll probably have real estate, maybe infrastructure, things like that. When I talk to endowments, and I've talked to them in the, in the past, and, and OCOs too, many of them, and I say, well, what's your theory about how to change those allocations? We all know you've got those assets in there. How are you weighting them? And how do those weightings change over time? And what I see is that one of two, three things happens. One, you decide on an allocation that your consultant says is on the frontier, probably in on the frontier nominal space, by the way. And the consultant says, this is how much we should have in infrastructure. This is how much we should have in inflation bonds and so on. Um, and that becomes the allocation. And that basically becomes a static allocation. Um, and that's fine if you don't know anything about relative valuations, but, but, you know, you can be smart about relative valuations without necessarily market timing. Where you can, you can, you know, make an an, an estimate about the real return to an, an, an a commodity allocation, and compare it to real returns of, of tips, and 
and your relative weights of those two things should be related, right? So that's one simple framework would be to assess the expected real returns to each of these items and, uh, and, and, and then optimize the framework on that basis. Almost nobody actually seems to do that. Uh, so that's one, one thing is, is that we see is that uh, endowments have sort of fixed allocations of inflation assets. Two, sort of the second approach that a lot of endowments take is they find managers that they love in the real asset space. Um, there aren't a jillion of them. There are many more than there used to be. Uh, but they find a manager they love. It's, you know, he manages a timber allocation, really love this guy. And sort of that becomes the driver of, of you know, how much timber do we need to have? Well, we kind of like this guy. You know, we don't want to cut him all the way back and so on. And unlike in equities where you find a good equity manager, but you want to lower your overall equity allocation, you just sell equity futures so you can keep the alpha uh, and separate the beta. That's much harder to do in things like timber or, or uh, uh, real estates, uh, you know, uh, 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 commercial real estate or, or tips even, um, inflation-linked bonds. So um, anyway, that's uh, – the the third the third method is um, that a lot of endowments use the three wise men method of making ad hoc adjustments on the basis of what your investment committee thinks is smart right now or what the consultant says, you know the flavor of the day. You know, uh, we think that timber looks cheap, so we're going to add more timber. We think that uh, farmland looks great, so we're going to do that. Hey, how about uh, intellectual property or or you know, wine or whatever, you know, um, and and so, you know, this is sexy, it's the new thing, and so that's how we add it. So none of those three things that I've mentioned is a framework, but there are ways to have pretty smart frameworks that are not really hard to do. It really is fairly simple, but you need to have a framework, you know. Uh, okay, so three, the third simple way, be smart about your commodities allocations. Again, everybody's going to have a commodities allocation, and you should. But different commodities behave differently given changes in real rates, given changes in the price level, that is inflation, and given changes in inflation expectations. If you invest in the Global Sachs Commodity Index, the, GS, the SPGSCI now, uh, that's cap-weighted or production-weighted. The Summer Haven Index is... Uh, a smarter index, and it's weighted for expected returns uh, based on momentum and value. There are various other indices that are weighted to maximize carry or you know, minimize the uh, backwardation and um, or maximize backwardation, minimize contango of the portfolio, but to, but still are more or less production weighted. And none of those is necessarily the best at providing the particular hedge that works for an endowment. Because as I said, an endowment has, you know, much more need for something that um, is, has duration with respect to real interest rates. Um, and, and so you can, you can look at uh, commodities in general, um, again, unlike equities. So all equities have equity beta, and the equity beta is pretty much the same thing. Not true of commodities. Corn has corn beta. Uh, copper as copper beta, and, and they all have different betas with respect to real interest rates, with respect to inflation expectations, and with respect to the level of inflation itself. So 
so take gold, for example, and I've had a podcast prior previously on gold. And the classic example here is that gold really has no statistically significant beta with inflation. Um, over a very long time, it gold keeps up as every hard asset does uh, with inflation, with the price level. But over any kind of, you know, two, five, ten-year period, gold is not particularly related to inflation. It is, however, um, quite highly related to real interest rates. Um, gold acts like a very long-duration tips bond. So its weight in a portfolio, if you, in, your, in, your commodity, in your commodities portfolio, shouldn't be determined by its weight in the GSCI, which is based on its production, um, or market capitalization or whatever, um, its weight should have something to do with how uh, much of the portfolio is in tips and or break-evens. Again, if you're, if you're looking at this allocation, this inflation allocation, the way you should be looking at it, the commodities are not completely divorced from all the other parts. It's not like commodities just stand off on their own. Commodities are affected by many of the same things that affect other inflation-related assets, and you need to have a framework for that. Four, be smart in similar, similar fashion. Be smart about the inflation-linked bond allocation. Don't just buy a TIPS index. Um, in inflation bond, most portfolios I've seen just sort of pick a duration target, and they buy an index or buy a collection of bonds, or maybe they get an active manager who manages a bunch of tips or, or, um, or maybe even international inflation-linked bond, which is, a, I think, a better idea than just owning you know, tips by themselves. But the beta of real yields to nominal yields changes as the level of nominal yields changes. What that means is that the fixed income part of this inflation protection portfolio should look very different when nominal yields are at 2% than when they are at 5%. So when nominals are at 2%, tips are actually more volatile than nominal bonds. Not just higher duration, but real yields actually move more than nominal yields at very low nominal yield levels. So an inflation protection portfolio built when real yields, when, when nominal yields are at 2%, should actually have a fairly low weight in tips and a higher duration in break-evens, if they're permitted, or in other assets that respond to inflation expectations. And those things, again, should change as the level of inflation, as the level of nominal interest rates, in fact, change. The, um, you know, the, and, and by the way, the problem that tips portfolios and portfolios with decent amounts of tips have, of course, and, and, you know, they're in the inflation protection portfolio, but the problem that they have is that their returns are driven by changes in yields and not by changes in inflation in some, you know, over some, you know, moderate period of time. And that's not what you want if you're buying an inflation protection portfolio. It'll do well in the long run and they'll do much better than nominal bonds. Uh, but, but, you end up with a lot of duration that maybe isn't exactly what, what you need. Uh, and then five is probably the easiest of these five steps to do, and that is steer far away from crypto. Um, endowments, I think, have not gone whole hog into crypto and haven't gotten nearly as excited about it. Um, if you want to be involved in crypto, then um, 
you know, put them in your, you know, exciting return seeking assets part of the portfolio, but don't put them in the inflation protection bucket. There's nothing remotely related to inflation uh, in crypto, at least in the way that it has behaved to date. So if you feel like you want to invest in crypto, keep them out of the inflation protection bucket because it's just going to ruin what it looks like your inflation protection is doing. Okay, so those are your five. I'm going to give you a bonus six, but it really isn't a simple way. And I kind of alluded to it earlier, though. Add convexity to your inflation outcome. So your portfolio is going to behave super well when inflation is at 2%. And, you know, so you just have to make 2% and then and then contribute the next 5% to your, to, uh, uh, to your endowment's purpose. Um, and, uh, and that's great. But your portfolio looks kind of like crap when inflation goes to 5%. So you, the portfolio you have, um, and this is, of course, you come up with weights based on what you think are sort of the subjective probabilities you'll be in each of these different regimes. But the reality is that you're in, the size of that inflation protection portfolio should be convex, right? So when inflation is low and stable, it should be smaller. And not just because you think inflation is going to be low and stable. What you would like to have is a portfolio that as inflation goes higher, it automatically becomes a higher weight. And uh, so you really should have a nonlinear allocation. The allocation itself changes when inflation changes. Or if we had inflation options that were were very liquid, illiquid, that were very liquid, then that this would be a great case for that, for having you know, a 4% inflation cap or something like that. Anyway, uh, we don't have inflation options like that. There are some assets that behave in sort of a nonlinear way and you can, but you you're, you sort of have to synthetically create and create through that framework and that structure, you have to create that nonlinearity behavior, that nonlinear behavior in process rather than in terms of the actual assets. Um, anyway, that's six. It's not... That's not really as simple as sort of the other five, and and um, but um, but I thought I would sort of mention it. Since I sort of had alluded to it earlier. We'll save it for another time, and and that's all for today because my voice is given out. Uh, but we'll. Um, I'm not going to stop before I give you the answer to the trivia question, and I love this trivia question. In 1904, the Olympic marathon distance was 24.8 miles. What caused it to be lengthened in 1908 to the current? Standard distance of 26 miles, 385 yards. And by the way, you feel that 385 yards. The marathon started as a 24.8-mile race in Athens in 1896, and it became 25 miles in 1900. Uh, and then it was back to being run at 24.8 in 1904. But in 1908, the Olympics were held in London. And the race was lengthened so that the Princess of Wales could view the start of the race outside of Windsor Castle, while Queen Alexandra could see the runners finish directly in front of her royal box at White City Stadium. And so because of uh, the Princess of Wales and the Queen, we got uh, we added another mile and a half to this race. So the next time you've past the 25-mile mark in your marathon, give a little thanks to, uh, to the royals because they're the reason for your pain <laughs> over that last little bit. Anyway, love that. 
Um, do check the show notes for those links to the Waring and Siegel piece. Um, that's all for today's podcast. Please like, subscribe, and refer others, and uh, say a prayer for my uh, for my uh, cold. You can contact me at inflationguy at enduringinvestments.com. Subscribe to the blog at inflationguy.blog. Um, if you want to subscribe to our quarterly or my private Twitter, you can do that on the website. Uh, visit Enduring Investments if you have an inflation challenge. And most importantly, defend your money. And if inflation is coming for you, remember, you know a guy. Remember, you know a guy.